Hello, and welcome to the very first episode of A Better's Verdict, a Herbert Smith Freehills podcast on gambling law. This podcast will focus on unwinding the tangled web of U.S. gambling laws past and present, telling the stories of the people affected by this sometimes impenetrable and often changing landscape, and providing insight on what will come next. I'm your host, Stephen Jacobs, a New York-based lawyer at the international law firm Herbert Smith Freehills. On today's episode, we will explore the story of the online poker industry that exploded along with the rise of the internet. There were teenaged wonderkins making millions, online operators making billions, and lawmakers struggling to regulate international websites beyond their reach. Judges poured over the rules of sentence construction and comma placement in an attempt to apply analog laws in a digital age. A billion-dollar industry hung in the balance. This is the story of the rise and fall and rise again of online poker. And I can think of no better person to tell the story with than Steve Ruddock, a former poker player turned poker legal writer and expert, the content director for bettingusa.com, and the editor-in-chief of the Gaming Law Review. Steve, thank you for joining. Thanks for having me. So now, like me, you were an online poker player back in the early days. Um, If your time doing that was anything like mine, during and after college, you probably encountered one question more than any others from family and concerned mentors and friends. The question being, is it legal? Well, Steve, was it legal? Um, that That is a good question. It really depends. Um, actually, offering online poker was illegal. So if you were an operator, state laws usually, even if you go down to um, business laws, would prohibit people from offering online poker. Actually, playing online poker was a different story. To my knowledge, there's only one state that has a law prohibiting that, and that's Washington. And that was passed in the um, early knots. So it wasn't even around at the time of the burgeoning days of online poker. That's right. Back in the early aughts, the internet was fairly new, and online gambling and online poker were never before seen phenomena. So lawyers and lawmakers scrambled to determine what laws may apply here. Under federal law, there was really only one relevant statute at the time, which is called the Wire Act. The Wire Act was passed in the 1960s to prohibit the use of quote-unquote wires for certain types of bets that impact interstate commerce. Although the relevant portion of the Wire Act is just a few sentences, courts and concerned parties have been struggling with the application of the statute for decades. Billions of dollars are on the line. I'll read the statute in a moment, but just to provide a sort of an overview, the big picture dispute concerns a phrase that appears to limit the prohibition on bets or wagers to only those on any sporting event or contest, bets or wagers on any sporting event or contest. This is vital because if the Wire Act is limited to prohibiting bets only on sporting events, then it's irrelevant to online poker, online lotteries, and a host of other types of online bets. So I'm going to read the statute that it prohibits, quote, whoever being engaged in the business of betting or wagering knowingly uses a wire communication facility for the transmission in interstate or foreign commerce of bets or wagers or information assisting in the placing of bets or wagers on any sporting event or contest or for the transmission of a wire communication which entitles the recipient to receive money or credit as a result of bets or wagers, or for information assisting in the placing of bets or wagers. So that's it. That's the Wire Act. So 
if you followed along with me, you can see that it prohibits using wires to transmit one, bets, two, information assisting in placing bets, three, communications entitling the recipient to receive money from the bets or information assisting in placing bets. The phrase on any sporting event or contest is only placed after the prohibition against transmitting information assisting in placing bets, not the prohibition, for example, of placing bets generally. So the million dollar question that lawyers have been dealing with is whether the phrase on any sporting event or contest is meant to limit every prohibition listed in the statute or just the prohibition on transmitting information assisting in placing bets, which is the one that immediately precedes the qualifier. So Steve, now that we have explained the tantalizing specifics of wire act sentence construction, in a big picture sense, do you think the drafters of this law in the 1960s intended for it to prohibit online poker over the internet? No, I can't even imagine they could envision the internet. So a lot of foresight would be involved if they're actually envisioning it applying to something that they have no concept of. Yeah, this was this was always a source of endless frustration to me. And um, I think people concerned about online poker laws across the country that an act from 1960 that, let's face it, it was targeted to bookies that were using phones to take bets across states. They wanted to cut down on organized crime. That was the point here. And the government was trying to extend it to apply to something that was never contemplated and never existed 40 years later. As we'll get to, there were some, there has been varying interpretations of this act throughout time, but before 2011, during the sort of rise of online poker, what did people think? Did this apply to online poker or was it only about sports gambling? Yeah, so initially, like you said, it was it would just be for sports betting, basically um, mobs taking bets over using phone communications and wires and things of that sort. So when it comes to online poker, there really wasn't any laws prohibiting it or even addressing it in any way. So I think people went searching for a law that might apply to it. And what they found was the Wire Act. So there was um, a 2002 um, DOJ opinion that was requested by Nevada gaming regulators about uh, a law that they were they were thinking of passing um, a legalization law way back then. But they ended up asking uh, the DOJ for an opinion on it. And the Department of Justice said that federal laws prohibit gambling over the Internet, including casino gaming. So it was um, basically they were taking the Wire Act and jamming it into whatever they could to cover this new um, activity that had arisen. Yeah, so the DOJ certainly didn't want it to be legal, but it was not totally clear whether it actually was, in fact, not legal. But the reality was that the sites that took the big bets were not based in the U.S., because if they were, they would have been shut down. These massive online poker operators popped up in remote locations like the Isle of Man and Gibraltar and Costa Rica and, and other sorts of places where they were sort of outside of the reach of the DOJ. And that's what led to the, to the burgeoning industry. One thing I, I remember from the early days, this was just at the very beginning of the internet. And there were many concerns about using the internet, including whether they, it could be trusted to use it for commerce at all. This was before, of course, we used the internet for all sorts of shopping and banking and everything. Do you remember concerns like that? 
Yeah, I mean, even uh, so I, I started playing poker in the late 90s. And even then, like you'd be sitting at a table at Foxwoods and you'd be talking to people and Internet poker would come up. And it was probably about 90 percent of the people playing brick and mortar poker would be I don't trust Internet poker one bit. Even in, into the early 2000s, you'd still hear the same thing. A lot of people just did not trust it. Obviously, they have reasons to if you go through the uh, history of Internet poker over the years. Spoiler uh, alert. Yeah. So it's um, some of those fears were definitely definitely warranted. But at the end of the day, I think it was a, just a thing where it was a new technology. And this was one of the first things that really blossomed out of the Internet as far as um, what I like to refer to as time sinks. So your streaming services, your apps, all of that stuff. So after the first few years, we were in this sort of Wild West legal period where we had the Wire Act. No one really knew if it applied to just sports gambling or online poker. And the sites were just raking it in. They, they were making millions and, and ultimately billions of dollars, 2004, 2005, 2006. And the U.S. government did not like it. Why didn't they like it? Well, they didn't like it because they weren't getting a cut of it. So certain <laughs> lawmakers and regulators across the country would look at this new activity and you'd start to see it popping up in, in the chat rooms and forums and things of that sort, how many people are actually playing it. And you start to get a whiff of how much money is being moved through online poker. So you had a lot of lawmakers that are looking for the money. They want the money to come to us. And there was another, obviously, this is an ongoing thing even now. There's just a, an anti-gambling faction within most legislatures. So mm -hmm. there's those two double-edged swords and it made for some strange bed bedfellows at the time. It's it's interesting you should raise the sort of the sort of gambling stigma, which certainly existed at the time, and, and as you said, exists in certain factions of um, politics now. I believe in 2006 there was a slogan or a catchphrase in Congress that said, "With online poker, you can click your mouse and lose your house." Yeah, that that was one of the uh, one of the harder ones to debunk too. The great thing about the anti-gambling movement, which I will give them a lot of credit for, is they're very good at those catchphrases. <laughs> and uh, we were always behind the eight ball because we would be trying to dispute a six word sentence with 2000 words of evidence and the, the six word sentence and the little phrases always won out. <laughs> so I, I think you're quite right that the government wasn't thrilled with uh, not getting its cut. And in 2006, they finally decided to take some action here and pass some legislation that went beyond the, the the Wire Act. And that's what led to what we call UGA, the Unlawful Internet Gambling Enforcement Act of 2006. Um, what did this prohibit? Yeah, so this was um, UIGA prohibited um, payments. So it wasn't, it didn't, um, a lot of people think that it made online poker, online gambling illegal, but it actually just made the um, processing payments for that activity illegal. So it actually, the, the legality of online poker did not change after UIGA, which was a lot of people still have a little bit of a misconception about that. Um, it was a piece of legislation jammed through in the lame duck session in uh, 2006. Like you said, it was part of the Safe Ports Act. So Congress had no choice but to pass it. Otherwise, it looks like you are pro-terrorist. <laughs> so it was um, an interesting piece of legislation. It had been kicking around for about a year and a half before that had a couple other names. But um, this was what they finally settled on. So it wasn't exactly the subject of vigorous debate 
No, um, the original act, which uh, basically they just took the wording of and reframed the uh, title. The original act had a couple hearings. There was some talk of it, but it never went anywhere in Congress. So I remember that in 2006, there was the, the biggest online poker series ever on PokerStars, which at the time was, I guess, the second largest poker site in the market. And the night that UIGEA passed, um, no one knew what was going to happen. People really thought it was the end. And at the final table of the biggest tournament, just so everyone listening knows, at when there's online poker tables open, there is a chat function where players and sometimes observers can all chat and give their comments. And in at this final table, there was an endless series of comments. And one that is tattooed in my memory still is someone saying, this is like fiddling on the deck of the Titanic. That was the sort of sense of doom and gloom in 2006. Yeah, and it was... Uh... It was even more so than just um, as I quickly laid out a minute ago, people are still conflating what UIGA actually did. Back then it was, this is banning, prohibiting online poker, what's gonna happen? So it was a, it was a really interesting time. And um, I think the fallout of UIGA was really interesting in how public companies handled it. Some of the um, online poker companies at that time had already gone public with massive IPOs. Um, others were in the process of and had to stop, which um, definitely hurt their bottom line a little bit. So it was so a how really- So companies handle it? What, what happened afterwards? So you had any, basically any publicly traded company. So you had a lot of different ones. You had um, something called Cryptologic Network. You had Party Poker. Those companies, Party Poker had just recently gone public. Those companies pulled out of the U.S. market, stakeholder, obviously, stockholders, things like that do not want any of that type of so if you were any, in anything the US, like that hanging you were over them. Persona non grata at these uh, at these sites that left the market, right? Yeah, 100 percent. And then you had some other companies that were still private. So you had the Poker Stars, the Full Tilt, um, Ultimate Bet, Absolute Poker, a few others that didn't have the same um, concerns. So they basically did the lawyerly thing and they found a legal opinion that said what they were doing wasn't illegal. And as you said earlier in this podcast, you're dealing with foreign jurisdictions going into the U.S. Where is the bet occurring is another big question. Does it occur at the server location of the company or does it occur at the person's house that's placing the bet? Does it occur at both? So there was all this convoluted legalese going on around that. And you have, I mean, PokerStars had many legal opinions saying that what they were doing wasn't illegal. Games of skill came into the conversation as opposed to casino style gambling. It was quite the quite the mess. Yeah, so yeah, so these sites where the management was sort of comfortably based on an island overseas, found some lawyers that and set up what is essentially an advice of counsel defense, right? By yes, getting advice that that says, no, what you're doing is completely legal. But this begs the question, yeah. if UGIA didn't criminalize the actual poker and it criminalized the, the going through banks to make the purchase of poker chips, how did they get around it? Well, what, what happened there? Right. So there was um, se several ways that they got around it, each um, sort of increasingly more controversial. <laughs> so the first was they just kept finding banks that would process the payments. The second thing they did was they would start um, 
some uh, I'll preface this by saying that uh, some companies say they didn't do this, but other companies did do this, which was they would miscode the credit card transactions to something that they weren't. So instead of a gambling transaction, which might be like a 9962, whatever, I'm not 100% sure what the credit card code is for it. They would code it as um, some other type of commerce. So it could be flowers or whatever it was. So it wouldn't raise as many alarms. And if you're using the right banks, the certain banks might not look into it as deeply as some of the major banks as far as what was actually being processed through there. The third thing that happened was companies actually tried to buy banks in the U.S. at one point. Yeah, so it was a basically how do you, how do we get around this? And they were really good at it. Kind of led to the downfall of online poker because you had basically you started relying on shadier and shadier third party payment processors. So the cost of doing business in the space was increasing dramatically. Um, funds would get seized every now and then, so there's another added cost. And then you're starting to deal with sketchier people that you know and, and of aren't, aren't the on players. the up. The players never asked questions when they would charge a poker chip purchase on their credit card and they would see a bill for, um, you know, Rocco's golf clubs. <laughs> yeah, well, they, they weren't that, uh, it wasn't that, um, tra- it was a little less transparent than that. It would just be like a weird, a weird thing. Yeah, 100%. And it, the, the weird thing about UIGA too was it was there, but it didn't go, uh, I believe it was almost... 2010 it's 2009 2010 before it was actually enforced before the government actually enforced that law they kept pushing it back again it just made the situation even more convoluted yeah so online poker notwithstanding the fatalism of the observers at that uh, poker table that i spoke about earlier who thought it was like fiddling on the deck of the titanic it was getting bigger and bigger there was more and more money um, the sites were making billions, and this kept going through, as you point out, 2010, um, and then really 2011. The restrictions got tighter in 2010, and and games started getting tighter because more and more banks declined to process transactions because they they feared getting in trouble. But the big sites still operated with seemingly little fear until April 15th, 2011, which is which is termed Black Friday in the industry. Uh, tell us what happened that day. Yeah, so that was the day that uh, the Department of Justice seized PokerStars, Full Tilt Poker, Ultimate Bet, and Absolute Poker. So those are the big four that were still serving the U.S. And uh, they, they seized those domains. They had the DOJ warning across it. If UIGA caused people to talk, this was it was the story for months and months in the poker world. And it was uh, an immediate shutdown, basically, of online poker in the U.S., the level of devastation maybe didn't come through in what you just said. For most <laughs> poker players, they woke up with all their poker sites, which were essentially their bank accounts because their money was kept in these poker sites. They walked to their computers, and rather than being able to check the balance on their bank account, they saw a DOJ seal saying, um, you know, you're no longer permitted to access this. There was a great deal of fear. Yes, a lot of people didn't think they were going to get their money back. And as you said in the opening, there were there are millionaires on these sites. And, and like you just said, a lot of them used the sites as bank accounts. They basically stored their money there. Um, I won't get into reasons why one might do that, but there was a lot of money locked up. Uh, I believe the final tally after the sites went, uh, did their 
payments to the U.S. and all of that stuff. I believe it was a half a billion dollars total locked up yeah. on that day. Yeah, it was a huge amount of money. And it led to lots of questions because no one, as we've pointed out, nobody really knew what the law was or what specifically prohibited online poker sites from operating. It was a very legally murky zone. Now, what we did know was the sites that were still operating in the U.S. that coded purchases, you know, as golf clubs or flowers had run afoul of of Ugea. But does that mean that the DOJ has the right to keep all of the player money? Yeah, that, that was the uh, big question. It actually, um, if memory serves me right, it was uh, a few weeks of confusion as to far as what would happen to that money. And then everybody realized that so long as the money existed, that they might get it back through the DOJ. So there was, um, that kind of segues into how the, these different sites were run. Every one of them was saying that your money was fully protected. It was kept in segregated bank accounts. Turns out that that was the case at maybe one of them. And the we, other we ones, won't name names. <laughs> the, uh, the other ones had a little bit more of a problem. So there was uh, some very interesting things going on behind the scenes there. And that really um, determined how these companies dealt with the DOJ at that point. So in other words, it wasn't actually, notwithstanding that it was the DOJ and really it was the Southern District of New York under uh, Preet Bharara that shut down these sites and it was the DOJ seal that players saw, but it wasn't actually the DOJ keeping them from getting their money back. Yes, correct. So, well, the government had basically told the sites that you will come to an agreement with us and then we will release these funds back to you so you can pay your players. The big problem was that outside of one site, there wasn't enough money to pay off the player account balances at the other sites. Yeah, these sites were such booming businesses when they were in operation because they had so much money running through them through this sort of glory days time period that as long as the music kept playing, they had no fear of not being able to pay players, whether they kept their player money segregated or not. But then once the music stopped, that created all sorts of problems. Right. So there was a there was a huge run on the bank, especially. Um, so one thing we kind of glossed over was how this played out overseas. So the reason um, poker kept growing after 2006, even with UIGEA, was there were poker booms happening in all these European and Asian countries, Australia. They were they were years behind the U.S. boom in that respect. So it was a continual growth. So after Black Friday, there were some criminal prosecutions of the folks involved in some of the shady banking activity and, and, and some of the, the, the people that ran the major poker sites. And that created sort of a dead zone because suddenly online poker was no longer welcome in the U.S. But around the same time, you know, the government seemed to ab abruptly reverse its opinion by putting out a, a new opinion on the Wire Act. But they had previously said it did apply to online poker. But then tell us about the, the 2011 opinion. Yeah, so that was at the request of um, Illinois and New York Lottery. They were seeing if um, they were, at the time, I believe they were doing um, subscription sales online, and they were concerned that they might be running afoul of the Wire Act in the so, way so they were doing that. So suddenly this interpretation that was meant to attack online poker, suddenly it hit up against the state's interest in the lottery. That's interesting. Yeah, so the they, um, the intermediary routing was is the uh, issue that comes up a lot in that. 
And basically, um, so they petitioned the um, Office of Legal Counsel in, I believe, 2009, 2010. The opinion came out in 2011. And it basically said that the Wire Act only applies to sporting events and not to other forms of online gambling. So that kind of opened the door for states to decide if they wanted to legalize certain types of online gambling. Right. With a federal prohibition out of the way, the states start saying, well, now we can do this on a on a state by state basis and decide if we want lotteries, if we want online poker, if we want daily fantasy and really every all sorts of other forms of gambling that are not sports betting, which which was the subject of of the specific federal law. <laughs> it's very logical rationale for prohibiting sports betting online, but allowing online poker or online lotteries, for example. The logical rationale would be our federal laws, basically, which often contradict one another or just don't make any sense in some respects. I guess um, I should even, say, is there a policy reason behind it? <laughs> no, there isn't, um, other than um, the mob used to run sports betting in the U.S. before. And, in the uh, 60s. Yeah. So, there, I mean, obviously, there was underground casinos and things of that sort, but it wasn't as big of a as an enterprise, especially on, in, as far as a criminal enterprise goes. So that would be the only reason that they might carve out the um, sports betting into those laws. Yeah, after Black Friday, there was a lot of sentiment in the U.S., negative sentiment towards the sort of government crackdown because online poker was out there legal in nearly every country in the world, except for the U.S., where people weren't being permitted to play. Uh, well, really, sites weren't being permitted to exist, and as a result, people weren't per being permitted to play. Yeah, and I, I mean, the general public also had been seeing online poker ads and watching World Series of Poker episodes, World Poker Tour episodes with all these poker players and hearing about their online exploits for eight years. And all of a sudden they're saying, well, this thing that wasn't illegal is now suddenly illegal. So that's it. It's kind of the differentiation I always try to get across to people is it, it resided in such a gray zone up until 2011. We even said it at the top of the episode where we were talking about, is it illegal to play? Or, okay, but is it illegal to operate the site? So there was always this um, feeling that it wasn't illegal, then it suddenly became illegal. It wasn't expressly legal, but it, at the same time, it wasn't illegal. Suddenly, all these people were being told, no, what you did was actually illegal. Yeah, and it, it's Sorry. funny because it, it, that, that's the way it comes across, right? That, oh, you, you were doing something illegal, where it was actually, oh, we just changed our mind about the legality of this thing. So it's, it's sort of like the reverse of our current um, situation with marijuana laws and things of that sort, where people for years had been doing something that was illegal. And now suddenly it's like, oh, well, that thing that was illegal before isn't, isn't anymore. So it was the opposite of that. So the, the floodgates begin to open with the 2011 Wire Act opinion. Online gambling is becoming legalized in all sorts of states in New Jersey and uh, Delaware, Nevada, Pennsylvania. And then just recently, the DOJ issued another opinion on the Wire Act, again, reversing course on this sort of two-sentence statute. Tell us about that. Yeah, so um, there was a longstanding effort to uh, rewrite the Wire Act. It was called RAWA, um, Restoring America's Wire Act. So basically, <laughs> um, 
advocates. That's what everyone's that. always worried about. They want that Wire Act restored. Yes. And so uh, the advocates for that, which numbered uh, one person, basically a very influential person, wanted to go back to the 2002 opinion that we talked about earlier. That's what they their their definition of restoring the Wire Act was not restoring it to 1961. It was restoring it to 2002. So they wanted the 2011 opinion overturned and to revert back to the 2002 opinion. So that was going on for years, um, basically from 2014 till 2018. That was an effort in Congress. There were bills pretty much every year. Uh, They never went anywhere. A couple hearings. And then in 2018, we got another OLC opinion, which basically reversed the Wire Act back to what it was before. An influential anti-gambling voice essentially petitioned the DOJ to say, no, this, this, this language, notwithstanding that it says specifically that it only applies to sporting events, because that only modifies one of the several clauses, the rest of the statute applies to poker. Correct. So it's kind of, it's open to interpretation. So when the new opinion came out, it basically... The the bigger problem with the new opinion was it didn't open the door to something. It tried to put the toothpaste back in the tube. And you already had, uh, in addition to the state you mentioned, that it passed online poker, online casino legislation. You had, uh, I believe, seven states with online lotteries at that point, full-fledged online lotteries. So that was a whole nother can of worms that so the, now- the 2018 opinion opened. It's not just like what they did in 2011 to individual poker players, where they said, what you've been doing for the past 10 years, that's illegal. Now the DOJ is telling states, what you've been doing with our explicit endorsement for the last decade is actually illegal. Yeah, and it was a a very nice passage in the 2018 opinion where they said, oh, states that have been relying on the 2011 opinion will give you X amount of time to change back to what we want. They got a lawsuit instead. So, so this led this led to the most current development, which is, as everyone listening can imagine, the states that had online lotteries were not thrilled. And we just got an opinion from the First Circuit on this after the district court ruled that it should the WIAC should only apply to to sports betting and sports gambling. Uh, the government appealed and it went to the First Circuit. Uh, tell us about that opinion. Yeah, so that actually um, basically went as well as you could if you're an online gambling advocate for legal regulated gambling. The First Circuit basically said exactly what the district court said, which is the DOJ case has really no standing whatsoever. I'm just going to make it as simple as possible for what what the uh, the, the, the court was not happy with the, the yeah. DOJ's arguments. <laughs> If you're a real grammar enthusiast, I recommend strongly reading this case. They use terms like the last antecedent rule and the serial <laughs> modifier rule and the punctuation rule, all to analyze these two sentences. Uh, the case is called New Hampshire Lottery Commission v. Rosen. But I don't think we need to get deeper into the grammatical analysis. We'll, we'll I think, bore all but the most hardcore writers. Yeah, so the, the case was interesting for a number of reasons. I found the process of it the most interesting as far as what was happening while the case was playing out in the courts, which was you had a couple of states pass legislation, one state launch, West Virginia, another state basically thumb their nose at no matter what happens with the decision they're going forward, which was Michigan. 
So it was it's almost as if it was a foregone conclusion that the 2018 opinion, which legal scholars that have looked at it were very skeptical of why it was written and the argument it was making. Um, yeah, so states well, were the, not why, right? the concerned DOJ about opinion. it in the least. Yeah, the DOJ opinion yeah. in 2018, right. which was, it seemed like a hastily crafted um, opinion. It really didn't make very good arguments against the 2011 opinion. Basically, states were just saying, yeah, well, whatever you want to do, we're not going to listen to you. And they just went <laughs> forward with what they were doing. This First Circuit opinion just came out in uh, January 2021. What do we think the upshot is for online poker? Yeah, I think it's um, the, the toothpaste is fully out of the tube. It's that point where you're actually pushing the toothbrush down the tube to get the rest of it out. That's how far along we are. And I just can't imagine that the federal government wants to jump into this, especially um, states right now in the current era where they need any revenue they can get, that they're going to roll back laws in uh 12 lottery states, 13 online lottery states now. Um, I, I can't even imagine how many sports betting. I believe we're up to like 24 with about mm. 15 or so with online. And then you have the online casino, online poker states where you got like six or seven different players there. So it's, I mean, r- rolling that back on the states would just be almost an impossibility at this point. Yeah, even more important than that is um, the possibility of interstate action, right? Yeah, so that's that's the next thing that's coming. Right. Um, basically, with the intrastate online poker, you're limited to traffic in your state. So if you live in New Jersey, that means 9 million people. So you're pulling from an online poker population of 9 million. Maybe you have 10,000 players in that population. So the bigger your player pool the larger your tournaments can be, the more cash games you can offer, the longer those cash games run. So if you're in New Jersey, chances are your peak traffic hours are going to be from about five o'clock at night till about one o'clock in the morning. You're going to have good traffic then. But if you're dealing with um, none of these states are legal, but I'm just using them as an example. If you're dealing with California, suddenly they're, they're three hours behind you. So now you've just extended your peak hours and you've extended California's peak hours. And then if you add an international country, suddenly your games are running around the clock. So that's very good for the operator. It's good for the customer because they have more choice. So mm-hmm. it's a interstate is a, there's a lot of benefits to it. But the biggest benefit is um, what we call in poker liquidity, which is you just need a lot of players. If you have 10 friends that play poker, lining them up on the same night is difficult. Okay, we're all going to play. We need we need 10 people to play. What works for you? Oh, well, Bob can't play it that night. Okay, well, neither can Jim. But if you have a pool of 25 friends and you only need 10 people, it's much easier. So that's where the liquidity comes in. Yeah, it, there's sort of a logarithmic effect as the numbers go up. And this is why at the top of the episode, you know, I mentioned the rise of online poker and the fall with Black Friday. And this is why I say, I think accurately, that this is the rise again of online poker, because once interstate poker in the U.S. takes off and, and eventually we add an international component, well, then suddenly we're back to 2006, 2007, 2008, where the whole world is playing together, which is um, that's that's where the big money comes in. Yeah. And I think the crazy thing about it is when you look back, you see, it feels like it was a minute ago, right? It feels like the <laughs> poker boom was a minute. But it's actually like almost 20 years ago now. So it's actually a generation of people who 
are unfamiliar with it. It's almost like like starting over. So with with this industry set to explode, should you and I just start an online poker room in the U.S.? What are some of the hurdles <laughs> that would that would be faced by potential operators? Uh, the, the hurdles facing now are you have to be licensed in pretty much every state. So it's a very expensive proposition. You don't get the same deposit bonuses and promotions that you got back in the day. Um, the cost of doing business is increasing rapidly. Um, when New York was considering this, they were considering a $10 million licensing fee. That's for New York. New so Jersey. So the government the- requiring yeah. any, any poker site that operates within their state to just sort of pay them a... A fee for, uh, and then and then you got to pay tax. You got to pay state taxes. So in Pennsylvania, uh, online poker license costs you four million bucks. Um, obviously, you got to go through the same vetting as a casino operator would. So that mm-hmm. would prohibit most people from getting a license. And then sixteen percent of your revenue it goes back to them in taxes. And then there's also requirements for infrastructure. You have to have your servers in your in-state. You have to hire so many people in-state in certain laws. There's just a lot of stuff going on. Basically, that's why you're seeing a lot of um, consolidation within the industry, just because the cost of doing business is so high. So you're only going to have these five or six poker operators that are pretty much in every state. And they're all publicly traded companies now, multi-billion dollar companies. PokerStars has merged with two different companies over the years. So they're this massive enterprise now, even bigger than they were before. Party Poker, the same thing. They went, they merged with GVC, which is a huge bookmaker and online casino in Europe. There's all this merger and acquisition going on because of the cost of business in the U.S. So it's kind of prohibitive to the little guy, which isn't <laughs> the greatest thing, but it's it's better than what we're where we're at now. So so big big possible rewards, but also also big barriers. Yeah, it's not. It's not. Um, definitely not the 2005 poker rooms. It's not like, oh, I made this software. I'm going to launch this. It's high end, uh, str- highly regulated. I don't know how well people understand the casino industry, but they're regulated like financial institutions. And online casinos are the same way in the U.S. now, and that's on a state by state level with a license required in each one. Every one of your suppliers needs a license. It's very complicated. Steve, thank you so much for joining me. Where can people reach you if they want to learn more? Uh, I'm on Twitter, um, at Steve Reddick. Uh, you can reach me there. And at Steve at BettingUSA is a good email, bettingusa.com. If anybody has any questions, always available. Great. Well, we want to thank everybody for listening to this episode. If you liked what you heard, please drop a five-star review on iTunes and hit the subscribe button. We'll have great new guests and discussions coming up on each episode, and we don't want you to miss one. In our next episode, we'll have a similar discussion on sports betting laws in the U.S. and how they've evolved and where they're going. As a reminder, this podcast is intended for entertainment purposes only and is not legal advice. If you'd like to learn more about online poker law or if you have any other questions, please email me at stephen.jacobs at hsf.com. Or you can search our website at uh, www.hsf, that's Herbert Smith Freehills.com. Thanks again to Steve Ruddock. This is Stephen Jacobs. Until next time.